Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to another edition of the Bill Press Pod. You know, there's no doubt that in books about today's political world, one of the biggest questions will be, how the hell did America's Christians become Donald Trump's biggest supporters? And why do they still support him? Nobody understands that phenomenon better than The Atlantic's Tim Alberta. He's the son of an evangelical pastor and still an active churchgoer himself who spent the last four years studying the evangelical movement and has written a great new book about it all, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory. As Alberta documents, many mega churches today have become full-time MAGA campaign headquarters. They are full-time political operations. They're, they are more involved in winning elections than in saving souls, no matter what it takes, even violence. And evangelicals who elected Trump in 2016 are still standing by him in 2024, no matter how much legal trouble he's in. In fact, the greater his indictments, the greater their support. So how did they all go from full-time faith to full-time politics? Tim Alberta is here to lay it all out for us in today's podcast. Tim Alberta, so good to connect with you. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Bill, it's a pleasure to hear your voice. Long time. Thank you for having me. So, you know, congratulations on the new book, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory. Tim, as a former seminarian myself, uh, I've read a lot of books about this whole intersection of faith and politics. It's sort of my wheelhouse, one of my favorite subjects. But yours I found especially powerful because of your own personal story. So tell us first, uh, our listeners, a little bit about that. What does this mean to you to talk about the evangelical faith? Well, it means, among other things, that I'm sort of uh, stepping out of my own tribe and uh, and airing some dirty laundry, which is not uh, always pleasant or, <laughs> yeah. or comfortable. Um, but yeah, I, I grew up in the evangelical church. My dad was the pastor of our home congregation, a pretty large evangelical Presbyterian church in Brighton, Michigan, uh, outside of Detroit, which is where I grew up. Cornerstone, and, right? Yeah, Cornerstone was the name of our church. And my dad was a fascinating guy. He, he was actually an atheist and working in New York finance, doing quite well for himself. And my mom worked for ABC Radio, and they had a Cadillac and a nice house, and they were living the high life. And then my dad had a pretty radical conversion experience and felt called to seminary and the ministry. And so he left that life behind. And my brothers and I grew up like physically, literally grew up in this church cornerstone. Uh, it was our, our community and our family and, uh, the, the kind of the center of our universe. And, um, and, 
until I moved away to Washington, D.C. in my early 20s, uh, that, that was my home. Have you left the church? No, I've not left the church. I, I am actually, um, well, I, I left Cornerstone uh, mm-hmm. for reasons we can get into if you'd like, um, although I still have a great deal of affection for many people at the church, uh, including for my dad's successor, a young pastor named Chris Winans, who I talk about in the book. Uh, I, I, my wife and I decided when we moved back to Michigan a few years ago that it was important for us for a number of reasons to sort of find our own way and forge our own church community. So, so we are a part of a congregation out in the Ann Arbor area where we live. So getting right to the heart of your book, the, the king, the title says a lot, the kingdom, the power and the glory American evangelicals in an age of extremism. So for evangelicals today, when they talk about the kingdom, the power and the glory, is that the kingdom, the power, and the glory for Jesus Christ or for Donald Trump? Well, uh, in many cases, I, I think it's um, it's a tug of war be- between the two. And I would say even, Bill, less, less kingdom, power, glory of Donald Trump and, and, and more kingdom, power, and glory of the United States of America, of, of, of their idealized version of the United yeah. States of America. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, I think, is when you spend time with a lot of these folks, when you swim in these circles, as I have uh, most of my life, you know, there's this notion of an America that was not just born out of Judeo-Christian ethics and principles, but born explicitly as a Christian nation and as a nation in covenant with God and a nation uniquely blessed and almost ordained by God to, 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 uh, to advance his kingdom here on earth. And, you know, that, that idea of sort of fighting for America as fighting for God and vice versa has, I think it's become deeply destructive and and done real damage to, to the gospel and effectively in many ways has almost merged in the minds of some of these folks has merged two kingdoms into one. And there is no longer a distinction in their minds between, am I fighting for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of America? Because they are almost one and the same. So, you know, it wasn't that long ago. And I grew up a Catholic and in my faith and another faith that, you know, you didn't talk about politics in church, right? There was a, there was a separate realm, right? That's certainly different today. When when did that change? You talk a lot a lot about Jerry Falwell. Was that sort of the turning point when pastors jumped into politics? Well, it's certainly a turning point, and I think it's I, I think there's probably um, I don't want to say recency bias because it's fifty years ago, but but maybe um, there is a, a a technology bias, if you will. What I mean by that is. You know, during during the 70s and television is really beginning to explode as a medium that's not just available, but it's it's become such a driver of information for the American people. And 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 not just not just one or two shows, but now there's there's a whole lot of shows and and there's there's a whole lot of voices. And, you know, what Falwell was brilliant in tapping into Mm -hmm. beginning in the late in the late 1960s early 1970s was using television to sort of build this empire of 
not only his Baptist church in Lynchburg, Virginia, but then subsequently building out his college, which was Lynchburg Baptist College and then renamed Liberty University. And then ultimately his political organization, the Moral Majority. And in many ways, what Falwell did uh, in building those three, in kind of those three cogs of his machine, he, he kind of, he was able to convince more and more people that that faith and politics need not be compartmentalized that you know that that a that a commingling of the two is not only appropriate but necessary because this this nation of ours this christian nation is under attack from the secular progressives and from the humanists and from the 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 evil democrats and and the godless bureaucrats who want to uh, abolish the almighty from public life and and that is in many ways i think the at least it's the start bill of the, this modern era that i'm dealing with here i i have no doubt that that politics infiltrated the church in some unhealthy ways long before Jerry Falwell. But I do think that for the purposes of of this conversation in the mass media era and understanding how we got to this point, that's a pretty good place to start. Well, the one thing that I, I had forgotten that maybe Jerry Falwell's first foray into politics was uh, opposing Jimmy Carter in 1976. Yes. I mean, you talk about <laughs> yeah. of all Christians, right? The man who probably went to church more often than all other presidents combined and taught Sunday school, at, right? And Jimmy Fal- Jerry Falwell made him the enemy of Christians, or tried to, at any rate. You know, and it's funny. It's funny for a couple of reasons, Bill. It, it, so there's because there's some symmetry to what we're dealing with today. One of exactly one piece of that symmetry is that. You know, much of what we see inside the church today that's really causing these deep schisms is not just the external threat of those, you know, godless progressives coming to get us and shut down our churches and persecute Christians, but really the the the, the, the harshest uh, judgments and the real animus is reserved for the the, the people inside the church who are deemed insufficiently tough, uh-huh. in, insufficient, insufficiently belligerent, insufficiently antagonistic. And that, in some ways, you can trace it back to Jerry Falwell singling out Jimmy Carter as somebody who he, he like an apostate, somebody who it's even worse because he, he's one of us. He's inside the church. Right. And so we need to make an example out of him. The other point of symmetry that I would that I would uh, highlight here, and it's just stunning when you think about the, the sweep of this. So in 1976, Jimmy Carter gives an interview to Playboy magazine. And for Jerry Falwell, this was beyond the pale. This was mm. this was a great galvanizing moment where he stood up and, and thundered about this and convinced all his whole army of evangelical followers, fundamentalist followers, that they couldn't stand for this, right? That that the leader of the free world, the leader of God's ordained country, could not be someone who would stu- who, who who would ex- exhibit such moral uh, decay as to talk with Playboy magazine. That's in 1976. Fast forward 50 years, right? Mm-hmm. And Jerry Falwell Jr. is posing at yeah. Trump Tower with Donald Trump. In front of a Playboy magazine with their with their giving both of them giving a thumbs up. And that's 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 a pretty that's a pretty clean, neat way to encapsulate that 50 year arc. So 
you know, they are connected, as you point out, because a reading with Jimmy Carter made me think about Mike Pence. I mean, is that the evangelicals' problem? You would think, again, if they're looking for somebody who is true blue and a true believer all the way, right, it would be Mike Pence. You, I know somewhere in the book you refer to him as the actual Christian, right? <laughs> so is he just considered, like, too nice and not enough of a fighter? Is that... Is that the problem? I think you know it's funny, Bill. When you uh, when you trace back the relationship between Trump and Pence, um, Pence did everything imaginable to subordinate himself to Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, the one break, the one break that they have is on January sixth, where Mike Pence places his fidelity to the Constitution ahead of his loyalty to Donald Trump, and. That is the moment in many ways that killed Mike Pence, because I've seen him in front of evangelical audiences. I've also seen Trump in front of evangelical audiences where he starts to light into Pence and talk about how he betrayed us, how he let us down, how he wasn't tough enough to fight. And it's remarkable to see these people, these activists who Mike Pence had been their champion for yep, years right. and, and he's you know a friend of theirs. He's one of them. And they just boo him and they jeer him and they, you know, they treat him now as a traitor in many ways because because when push came to shove, he wasn't willing to do what needed to be done. And and if that isn't a great window into much of that white MAGA evangelical mindset today, then, then I don't know what is, because in many ways, that's what Donald Trump's legacy is. He conditioned these people to demand something more than just piety, something more than, you know, just good Christianity. No, he, he demanded something pugilistic. He demanded something, you know, like militant out, out of, out of their leaders. And that's what Trump has given them. And by that standard, no one else can pass muster. So you, we use the term evangelical and you, you talk, it's, <laughs> there's not a clear definition of evangelicals, I guess, right? But how did you distinguish it from other branches of Christianity, Tim? I mean, how should people think of it? Yeah, listen, I, I try in the opening pages of the book, I try to be clear that a couple of things. Number one, we are talking about evangelical with the best definition that we can that we can kind of wrap our arms around uh, in the context of the times and the context of where how that how that term has evolved. So, you know, evangelical in the 1970s, people would joke. It was like, well, anybody who follows Bill, Billy Graham, right? You're, you're an evangelical. And Billy Graham, of course, gave a famous quote where he said, actually, you know, I, I really don't know what it means. <laughs> but, but really what we saw with, as we were talking earlier about the fusing of Republican politics, conservative Republican politics with uh, conservative reformed theological precepts in the church and the Protestant tradition and kind of the, the fusing of those things together in, into kind of one cultural stew. I think that became sort of what we know today as modern evangelicalism. Now, of course, let's be clear, Bill, there are tens of millions of people in this country who identify as, as evangelical and, and plenty of them are people who 
really want nothing to do with politics. Like, sure, yeah. they may vote every uh-huh. four years and, and hold their nose for one candidate or the other, but they they would cringe. They would wince at being defined as political in nature that uh, they view evangelical as a spiritual signifier that it is taken from the Greek of, of, of good news of gospel that to spread the gospel is to be an evangelical. At least that was the sort of common denominator historically. But I think by virtue of what we saw during the years of the moral majority, by virtue of how the term has been more openly embraced by very casual Christians, frankly, we saw some polling during the Trump years that showed that more and more white Trump supporters were self-identifying as evangelical, even as fewer and fewer of them were actually going to church on Sundays. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that that term now carries, in many ways, more cultural and political significance than it does religious or doctrinal significance. So, and as you point out in the book, in 2016, 81 and here's the question I get asked all the time, Tim, and I'm sure you do too, and I don't know the answer, but in 2016, 81% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. I mean, how could that happen? That these people who argued just a little earlier, right, the character matters in politicians could basically, you know, line up behind the twice-divorced, you know, serial adulterer whatever else you want to call him, Donald Trump. It just, the, the conflict is just uh, inexplicable. Well, I can explain it at least, uh, at least in 2016, the, the explanation is a little bit more plausible. So in 2016, Donald Trump is sort of an empty vessel and he, you know, he, he hears all the, the skepticisms. He, he knows that he is viewed with great suspicion by the evangelical community because it's easy to forget now, Bill. But, you know, th- those people were the last to get on board with Trump in 2016. They had voted for Cruz and for Rubio and for Kasich in the primaries. There uh-huh. was really yeah. very little evangelical support for Trump in 2016 when he first ran. But what happened is he wins the nomination and then he very smartly, he puts Mike Pence on the ticket as kind of his ambassador to the evangelical world. He releases his list of Supreme Court nominees and promises to appoint pro-life Supreme Court justices. And then he really goes on kind of a blitz to, to, to court the, the movers and shakers in that world. And he gets people like Franklin Graham and Jerry Falwell Jr. and Mike Huckabee and Ben Carson and others to vouch for him and say, look, you know, God sometimes uses these unlikely vessels for, for to, to advance his 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 plan and his good. And, and this is one of those times. And frankly, Bill, you had this nakedly transactional relationship where a lot of these evangelical voters said, look, I don't I don't trust this guy as far as I can throw him. But what's our alternative? Hillary Clinton and and two or three pro choice Supreme Court justices. So they were willing to hold their nose and to vote for him because he promised to give them the things that they wanted policy wise. And, and look, in many ways he did. Right. But but even, even as, but, but even as he did, he was continuing to behave and, and, and talk in ways that these same voters never would have tolerated it from any other candidate, especially a candidate with a D after their name on the ballot. So, so why, were they continuing to tolerate it from Trump became the question after his first election. And you quote Ralph Reed, still a faith leader, and he was the 
executive director, I guess, right? When of Jerry Falwell's moral majority back. That's when I first met him. No, no, he be, well, he became he 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 became executive director of the Christian Coalition, oh, that's which it. was Christian the Coalition. sort of uh, yeah, yeah the the, the right. next the successor right. group. Right, but you quote him on page one ninety eight of your book here. I've got it in front of me. This is what sums up Ralph Reed. Character did not, you're not quoting him, this is you speaking about Ralph Reed and what he believes. Character did not matter. Truth didn't matter. Honor and integrity didn't matter. Those were means, and all that mattered was the ends, winning elections. That kind of sums up where they ended up, right? Yeah, it does. I mean, look, if you if you view politics as just a bottom line business and it's at the end of the day, uh, you know, who who wins and who controls what and who has power, then that's fine. Bill, a lot of people do. The argument I'm trying to put forth in the book is that Christians, those who follow the teachings of Jesus, and not only the teachings of Jesus, but who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and took on flesh to become fully man and fully God and to mediate between a broken humanity and a perfect creator, that 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 they believe that he uh, died on the cross for their sins and, and has atoned and that they are supposed to be then growing closer to him and more Christ-like every day. You can't just treat politics as a bottom line business. You can't just you can't brush off these concerns about character and about truth and about integrity because those means matter. In fact, we're told again and again throughout the New Testament that the means matter more than the ends, that that ultimately, you know, winning or losing some election really doesn't matter. But how you treat people and how you conduct yourself and how you behave as as an ambassador for the kingdom of God, that matters a great deal because because the credibility of the gospel is what's on the line here. And this idea that ultimately, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures and the country's in trouble and he's he's going to stand up to our enemies and therefore we're willing to turn a blind eye to his treatment of God's children. It's just not something that's defensible from a biblical perspective. So this coming closer together, or even maybe this merger of faith and politics, what impact has that had on the church, and where does that leave us today? Uh, let's get into that, Tim, after a quick break here, if we can, on the Bill Press Pod. Stand by. We'll be right back. And today's podcast with Tim Alberta brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, under the leadership of Sean O'Brien. The Teamsters, America's largest and most diverse labor union representing every aspect, every facet of the American labor movement. Uh, as they say, they represent everybody from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers. So we salute the members of the Teamsters, thank them for their great work on behalf of all of us Americans, and thank them especially for their longtime support of the Bill Press Pod. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back with today's podcast. Our guest, Tim Alberta, he is a former chief political correspondent for Politico. Uh, now a staff writer for The Atlantic. Uh, Tim wrote that very uh, powerful article that cost uh, Chris Licht, the former president of CNN, his job. And he is now the author of a powerful new book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. So let me ask you, this politicization, if you will, of faith, uh, and this, this just f- almost full involvement in winning elections. Has the church overall suffered because of that? Well, I believe it has, uh, you know, it, because here's the thing, right? When I say you, the church, you, I mean, you know, religion in general, people, people yeah, trust. The capital yeah, capital C church. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, it has it, it, for a number of reasons, Bill. I, I mean, I think one of the, one of the big things I try to focus on in the book is this idea that, you know, the church ultimately its purpose its its aim its mission is to uh is to draw people inside closer to Christ but then go outside the walls of the church and to share the gospel to make disciples bring those disciples into the community of believers and then continually draw those people inside closer and closer make them more and more Christ-like that is the purpose of the church right it, but when you begin to think of the church as having other purposes, as, you know, winning the culture wars, mm-hmm. as dominating the country, as imposing your belief system on the institutions of government, uh, on running the government itself, then you start to lose focus. Uh, and, 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 you know, for a pastor, there's this, there's a bit of a danger of mission creep. So a, a pastor who, decides, okay, well, you know, this one issue is really important to me and there's an election coming up. So maybe I can just kind of dabble in this one issue. Well, you know, mission creep, as they say in the military, like one day you're blowing up a little munitions hut and the next thing you know, you're waging war on the entire continent. And that's sort of what has happened in a lot of these churches where there was, you know, there was, there was no, there was no malicious intent. It didn't necessarily, uh, you know, it wasn't planned this way, but churches that began to dabble a little bit here, a little bit there in some of their sort of conservative Republican causes, suddenly it becomes this thing where it's, you know, the red team is good and holy and the bad (laughs) team is, the blue team is bad and evil. And, and, And therefore we are, our loyalty, our identity is rooted in that red team. When, you know, Jesus, as I was talking with this, with a pastor 
just the other day, he was saying, you know, Jesus was political, but Jesus wasn't partisan. And so if you want to pick and choose and be selective in your application of biblical teachings to try and win an election uh, or to try and persuade your people to vote a certain way, that is, I think, dangerous and misleading because it's it's really undermining the ethos of the gospel in its in its totality and really most fundamentally i must say aside from any specific policy application around the dignity of human life or around refugees or poverty or what have you just the simplest teaching of all which jesus said is the second great command to love your neighbor as yourself and you know, when churches become more and more political, um, you know, politics isn't about loving your enemies. Politics is about defeating your enemies. And <laughs> the church is supposed to the church is supposed to represent something entirely yeah. different. And, and it's difficult to it's difficult to reconcile the mission of the church with the mission of a political campaign. Uh, right. You po- and you point out, in fact, you use the phrase at one point, Christianity is in disarray that today. Fewer Americans identify themselves as believers. Uh, fewer Americans than 20, 30 years ago attend church today, right? So I, I don't know whether you blame, can blame all of that on uh, the fact that the church has become more involved in politics, but uh, it's a well, fact, I, right? But I, it's, it's certainly a factor. And, you know, the other polling that's really fascinating on that front is that if you go back and look 30, 40, 50 years ago, unbelievers in this country had overwhelmingly positive views of the church, uh, of organized religion, of Christianity specifically. They thought that it did a great social good. They thought that, you know, there was valuable moral teachings. And now it's the exact opposite. The, The secular culture has nothing but disdain for the church. And, you know, it, it's very, for me, uh, though the, the, the statistics you just cited, I think, you can't divorce them from this statistic I just cited. In other words, Mm. people who hold these really negative, hostile views towards the church, of course, they're far less likely to ever wander into a church in a moment of grief or of crisis or of, 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 of real wandering in their life and wondering, you know, I want maybe just maybe there's something to this idea of, of Jesus. Maybe I'll go learn more. They would have been far likelier to do that 30 or 40 years ago than they are today. Than they are today, right. So did Donald Trump play the evangelicals, I mean, in this sense, right? He, he captured them. They helped him win in 2016, and yet now he's blaming them for the losses in 2022, saying, you know, they were too too strong on abortion or going too far on abortion, and we got to back off a little bit. <laughs> what impact does that have on those who supported Donald Trump so strongly? Well, okay, I'll give you two answers there because it's pretty interesting. So on the one hand, Trump really made some enemies when he did that. When he threw pro-lifers under the bus after the 2022 midterms, I was hearing from people, influential people in that movement, who said that they were done with Trump, that that this was unforgivable, that they would look to, you know, maybe rally support around one of his primary challengers. But then something happened uh, pretty shortly after that. Alvin Bragg delivered that first indictment in New York. And suddenly there was this rallying effect where 
you know, particularly at the grassroots level, we'd seen polling show that Trump's support among evangelicals was really starting to wane. And there was a question of, okay, is this it? Is this the break that we've been waiting for? But then that support went right back up around the time that he was indicted, which is fascinating because if you if you subscribe to this theory, as I certainly do, and I write about this at length in the book, around you know Trump as a protector figure, Trump as a mercenary figure, someone who was almost contracted out to do the dirty work for these evangelical Christians who believe that their country is in decline, terminal decline, that 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 the church is going to be shut down by the secular government, that their way of life is soon to be gone and unrecognizable, that they need, you know, if the barbarians are at the gates, then they need a barbarian like Donald Trump to to fight for them. And and so that persecution complex, Bill, mm-hmm. is so is so real and and is so present in the minds of a lot of these folks that when Donald Trump starts getting indicted, it actually is a net plus for him. It's they're they're thinking, well, yeah, that makes sense, right? They got to get rid of him first if they're going to take us down next. And so suddenly he was handed kind of a lifeline from his problem with the pro-life movement. Now, that having been said, let me just add, this is going to be the first post Roe v. Wade presidential election held in this country. And for millions of single issue evangelical voters who have been mobilized for decades to vote Republican just because of this one issue, there's a real question here of whether any meaningful fraction of those folks, even just one or two percent of them, three percent of them, if they stay home or if they leave the top of the ticket blank because they mm-hmm. don't want to vote for a pro-choice candidate in Joe Biden, right. but they also have just reached a point where they're just they're so exhausted with Trump that they can't vote for him again. That could make the math incredibly difficult on Donald Trump. He he really cannot sustain any sort of fall off w- with that group. Right. It wouldn't take a large percentage at all to, to make a difference. Uh, Tim, you also speak to some of the leaders or former leaders uh, not so long ago uh, of the evangelical movement, like Russell Moore from um, the Southern Baptist Convention, Robert Jeffress, right, who was, didn't he, he, he preached a sermon for uh, Trump's inauguration, I believe, right in St. John's yeah. Church. Well, well, he pr- prayed over him, yeah, before right. the inauguration, yeah, and, and, right. and preached, yes, at the at the church. Do they have any second thoughts about Donald Trump, and have they expressed them? Well, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I um, with with Robert Jeffers in particular, who is probably the most prominent pro-Trump pastor, uh, and and of course he leads First Baptist in Dallas, which is a historic, really important megachurch in, in American history. You know, I sat with Jefferson in his office at that church, and we really went back and forth for a long time on this. And he actually did give me some daylight. He, he sort of talked about how he'd wrestled with God over, you know, did he go too far? Uh, and did he, did he uh, perhaps damage the credibility of his witness by by lumping himself but by, by by tying himself so closely with Trump and even that admission even even that concession was astonishing bill i was i was really stunned to hear him say that but it didn't last long if he was having second thoughts they did not last long he is back fully vocally supporting trump and kind of you know questioning anybody who who doesn't do the same from the evangelical world so my my answer to your question is, look, I think that a lot of these guys in their quiet, private moments 
they have a lot of second thoughts and they struggle with, are they, are they doing the right thing? Are they damaging their witness for Christ? But when the lights come on, they kind of go right back to the song and dance and they do the same thing that they've been doing. And, you know, it comes back to this question of, of power and influence and money, of course, and having a seat at the table. And, you know, if you feel like you can be on the inside and help to advise the leader of the free world, then boy, that's just something you can't pass up. And, Mm. you know, I, I just think that that idea of earthly power, again, it just runs it just runs counter to the biblical concept of power and really to this idea of dying to our earthly identities in order to elevate our eternal identity in Christ. So, so kind of wrapping up, I want to some uh, circle back to, you mentioned before kingdom power and the glory for a lot of evangelicals. It's about America, the United States of America, you know, what they believe that the United, the purpose of the United States, if you will, as a as a Christian nation, uh, sometimes called Christian nationalism, but also called white Christian nationalism. To what extent is race part of this movement, uh, Tim? What did you find in your, well, in your own life, but also in your research for this book? You know, it's 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 difficult to. Uh to remove race from the equation for, for a whole host of reasons. Uh, if you think about the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Protestant denomination in this country, you know, the SBC was born out of a divide over slavery, over, over abolitionism, over, you know, do, do you know, the, the mainline Baptists at the time were uh, supporting the abolitionist cause. And the Southern Baptist Convention was essentially spawned as a pro-slavery, anti-abolition offshoot. And so here you have the largest denomination in the country that is wrestling, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, 100, right. 150 years later, whatever it is, with, with that same core question of racial reconciliation and institutional racism in its churches. You know, Bill, one of the things I point out early in the book is that when I talk about when, when I differentiate, you know, my tradition being the white evangelical tradition, it's for two reasons. Number one, it's because many evangelicals of color, particularly black evangelicals, they will tell pollsters and they have for a long time that, you know, many of them don't even want to identify as evangelical because of the cultural and political attachments. Uh, they would rather identify as born again mm -hmm. in a social science setting than they would as evangelical. But even those who still do identify as evangelical, they are not politically conservative, or they might be on a couple of issues, but they might be politically liberal on a whole host of other issues. And so the reason that we draw these distinctions around white evangelicalism is I think because there is just a profound, uh, I, just a definitional difference to, to, to some of these folks. Now, when you segue that into white Christian nationalism, well, look, Christian nationalism in many ways is predicated on this idea that, that we were born as a Christian nation and we need to restore it, right? We, we need to restore this idealized Christian America. Well, 
what you know who what are you restoring and who are you reclaiming it from right if you talk about restoring <laughs> right. 19 1930s uh, christian america then i think a lot of black evangelicals would say no thank you yeah. I, I'd, I'd rather i'd rather not go back to that so you know it's it becomes difficult to separate christian nationalism from a project that is explicitly if not racist in its aims, then is certainly more exclusionary in its aims just by the historical context. Right. Yep. So let me give you, as a son of a pastor, uh, the last word you mentioned, and it, it caused me to pull out my copy of the New Testament and uh, double check it, that your favorite verse uh, in the entire Gospels is Second Corinthians or I guess Donald Trump called it two Corinthians, didn't he? But anyhow, we call it Second Corinthians, <laughs> chapter four, verse eighteen. Why is that important to you, and what does it say about what we ought to be thinking? Yeah, so uh, the Apostle Paul, he's writing in this letter to the church in Corinth, Greece. Which, um, not to go full Bible nerd, but just for a moment, <laughs> you know. Corinth, Greece was a crazy city. It was kind of like the Las Vegas of the ancient world. All kinds of depravity and debauchery and murder and uh, sexual craziness. It was just, it was quite a place. And the Apostle Paul has planted this small church there that he's attempting to nourish and, and help the people kind of, you know, come closer to Jesus and forget their identities of, 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 the, of the world that they have known around them. And so he says to them at this part in his letter, he says, you know, we fix our eyes, we as followers of Jesus, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And I think the application in that specific letter is, is Paul saying to these people, look, Whatever your identity was be before you came to know Christ, it no longer matters. He says in his other letters, you know, there is no more Jew or Gentile, free or slave, man or woman. You know, we are one in, in, in Christ Jesus. But he's saying here more specifically that, that your identity is, is no longer the, the things you can see around you. You know, and in our context, of course, Bill, you know, this this country of ours that we love, you know, I'm proud to be an American, but like it's ultimately not our home. This political campaign, these candidates, they, 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 they're fleeting. They're temporary. They're ephemeral. They're going to be here today and gone tomorrow. We are nothing but uh, but but dust. And and yet, if we keep our eyes fixed on what we can't see, which is the kingdom of heaven, if we keep our eyes seen on the eternal identity that we have in Jesus, then we will not only have the proper perspective on all these earthly attachments of ours, but we will actually be able to love them and pursue them in a healthier way because our priorities will be straight. And, and I think at the end of the day, that's really what I'm trying to get across in the book is that as mm -hmm. a believer in Jesus Christ, um, your politics and your views on culture and everything else, they must come through the prism of your faith in Jesus. It can't be the other way around. You can't view your faith in Jesus through the prism of your politics. It just doesn't work that way. Keeping all things in perspective, indeed. Thank you, Tim Alberto. Again, the book, folks, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory. 
American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. Uh, there'll be a link for you to purchase your own copy of the book, uh, maybe uh, extra copies so you can gift them to your friends and during the holiday season here. That link you'll find in the episode notes to today's podcast. Happy holidays to you, Tim. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk again soon. Bill, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And that's a wrap for today's podcast with Tim Alberta. Again, uh, you'll learn a lot about the church and politics, the good and the bad in Tim's book, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory. Check the episode notes for today's podcast for a link so you can get your own copy of the book. Now, we'll be back on Friday, of course, with our Reporters Roundtable, another big week in Washington. President Zelensky from Ukraine will be here to personally make the case for continuing to help Ukraine in its effort uh, to defeat Vladimir Putin and Russian forces in Ukraine. Uh, we'll follow that, talk about that on Friday. And also, uh, yes, it looks like House Republicans are determined to hold a vote to open an official impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden, even though they haven't figured out yet what they could possibly impeach him for. All of that will be uh, subjects of, uh, and that a lot more subjects of this week's roundtable on Friday. So have a great week. Come back and see us Friday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod, our reporters' roundtable.